Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Community Pharmacy Podcasts, the podcast where we discuss topics relevant to the advancement of community-based pharmacy workforce, business, practice, and our profession. My name is Amanda Place, clinical pharmacist at Ascension St. Vincent, Indianapolis, and joining me today is Becca Myers, PGY1 community-based pharmacy resident at our institution. In this episode, we will be discussing the impact of vitamins on disease prevention and overall health. Welcome, everyone. So, Becca, the United States Preventive Services Task Force recently released updated guidance on the use of vitamins for patients. What is the new USPSTF recommendation, and what are the key takeaways? Yeah, great. So, well, to start, I do want to emphasize that this recommendation is mostly a reinforcement of the old 2014 recommendation with new evidence and support provided. And its focus is on vitamin and supplement use, particularly in the prevention of cardiovascular disease or cancer. They really focus on these two disease states because they're the leading causes of death within the United States. So this recommendation is based on the evidence and prevention of those two. And community pharmacists should keep in mind that while patients are using vitamins or supplements for these reasons, the USPSTF recommendations are not necessarily applicable to prevention of other disease states. For most supplements or vitamins in this recommendation, a clear risk-benefit analysis can't be done due to lack of robust evidence. However, there are two products that have been clearly mentioned within the USPSTF recommendations and were listed in the old 2014 recommendations as well. And these products are beta-carotene and vitamin E. So starting with beta-carotene, this is a precursor to vitamin A. I do want to take a moment to touch upon the fact that with any vitamin or supplement, it's important that we're recommending to our patients to try and get it from their dietary intake if they cannot receive it from supplements or vitamins over the counter. Beta-carotene being a precursor to vitamin A would lead us to look for foods with vitamin A in them. And those would include something like carrots, as the carotene might lead someone to think about, and then sweet potatoes also, which contain almost double the amount as carrots, actually. So the USPSTF recommendation for beta-carotene mentions a recommendation against beta-carotene with moderate certainty. This is because of an increased risk of lung cancer incidence. And that study was done in people who already had exposure to asbestos or smoking tobacco. The harm was found to outweigh any benefit that beta-carotene may have had. And any benefit beta-carotene may have had is also found in vitamin A, which again can be found in the diet. On the other hand, talking about vitamin E, they found that through different studies, there may be an increased risk of bleeding associated with taking vitamin E, and there's no net benefit associated with taking it on all-cause mortality, nor cardiovascular disease event, or cardiovascular disease mortality, nor mortality from any cancer. Some dietary sources for vitamin E would be nuts and seeds, mostly almonds, hazelnuts, or sunflower seeds. For the sake of time, I won't go over all the other vitamins that this recommendation does touch on in relation to cancer and cardiovascular disease prevention. 
But I will mention that they focus on multivitamins, vitamin D, calcium, and vitamin C, for example. So while I may have just spent some time on the controversy of vitamin E and beta carotene, there are instances that vitamins are indicated for patients and have substantive evidence. Amanda, do you mind touching on the vitamins that do have evidence to support their use? Of course. So as we think about this, I want to first consider patients of childbearing potential. How many people in this group come into our patient care settings every day? The United States Preventive Services Task Force actually recommends that all patients capable of childbearing should be taking between four and 800 micrograms of folate per day to prevent potential neural tube defects, especially for a couple of reasons. We recognize that over half of all pregnancies in the U.S. are unplanned and that up to 75% of patients of childbearing potential do not get their recommended daily folate. So this puts us in a position where we really need to be thinking about planning ahead for the unexpected. Right. We recognize that other organizations like the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the World Health Organization recommend an intake of greater than 400 micrograms a day. And I wanna have a caveat here about the labeling of many nutritional supplements. In 2020, just as COVID was picking up, the FDA relabeled or recommended relabeling the nomenclature of many different nutritional supplements. So you'll see this on vitamin A, vitamin E, folic acid, vitamin D, where there's both old and new nomenclature. So with folate, it goes from micrograms or milligrams to dietary folate equivalents. When we talk about diet vitamin D later, You'll see it goes from units to micrograms or milligrams. So being cognizant of that as we're working with our patients and recommending strengths. Building on this, patients who take certain anti-seizure medications, drugs like valproate or carbamazepine, the USPSTF alludes to this and offers the idea that these patients may require even more folic acid to safely prevent those neural tube defects. But the Society for Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada actually takes it a step further by risk stratifying the patient and then suggesting doses as high as four milligrams of folate, along with 2.6 milligrams of B12 to ensure adequate stores prior to pregnancy. Continuing the folic acid supplementation theme, but moving away from patients with childbearing potential, folic acid supplementation in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis may help to decrease the side effects associated with some of those medications with a recommendation of one milligram per day on non-dosing days, which can decrease side effects by anywhere between 65 to 70%. And higher doses can help patients that aren't tolerating the medicine so that we don't have to shift to something that is potentially more toxic or less well understood. Moving away from folic acid now and thinking about bone health, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology recommends that postmenopausal women with low bone mineral density and high risk of fractures with osteoporosis or postmenopausal women at high risk of fracture with osteoporosis who can't take their meds, can't tolerate the osteoporosis medications, mm -hmm. these patients can get benefit from taking calcium and vitamin D to reduce their risk of fracture. They actually found significant reductions in fracture risk with both vertebral and non-vertebral fractures, which is important to note but the greatest benefit actually occurred in our older patients, patients who were above the age of 70 and potentially living in residential care. So these may be the patients where we focus our recommendations as pharmacists to really help improve that fracture reduction. As we head into cold and flu season, there may be patients interested in a vitamin-based approach to treat and prevent upper respiratory tract infections like the common cold. And interestingly enough, zinc lozenges have some demonstrated efficacy in decreasing the duration of symptoms in some meta-analyses, maybe by as much as 30 to 45%. 
but they are associated with taste changes, that Mm -hmm. metallic taste that a lot of us don't care for. A more recent study done in Finland failed to show a difference, but there were some study design limitations that make it difficult to fully apply the results. Evidence is certainly limited, but some patients might find the potential for decreased duration worth the cost, both financial and side effects. And then lastly, vitamins and minerals have benefit when repleting patients who've become deficient in one or more nutrients. This can be because of a variety of reasons, both physiologic, like menses in patients of childbearing age, or pathologic, like anemia due to an iron malabsorptive syndrome. One of the most extreme malabsorptive situations, though, relates to patients with a history of bariatric surgery. Patients with this history, especially those with a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass or a biliopancreatic diversion are at high risk of nutritional deficiencies and really should be maintained on higher than standard supplementation doses and even higher if they're found to be deficient. Now, pharmacists, I think, can play a role here in helping patients find those formulations and dosage forms that are really best suited to the specific needs of the patient, whether it's preference or nutritional status and type of procedure. Some good generalities here, though, would be to include looking for chewables and liquids if possible, preferentially choosing a non-pH-dependent calcium product, and if tablets have to be used, making sure that they aren't large. Generally, I think a good rule of thumb is smaller than a regular M&M candy. A link to the guidelines for peri- and post-operative management, including nutritional supplementation, as well as a link to many of the other guidelines that we'll touch on today is available in the show notes. So for those of us in the community setting that have access to the patient's medical record, it's fairly straightforward to determine if the patient has one of the conditions I just discussed. However, when working in that setting and you don't have electronic health record access, this determination can be much more challenging. Becca, when you're working in a community pharmacy setting, what do you look for to know if you should be making a recommendation? Yeah, I think this is a very relatable question for our community pharmacists, since most of us do not have access to any type of electronic health record. But there are medications that can give us indicators on what conditions a patient may have and would require vitamin supplementation. Amanda, you mentioned folic acid earlier. One medication that should flag to a pharmacist that folic acid supplementation is needed is methotrexate. Yeah. This would be true when methotrexate is being used for any non-cancer purpose, whether it be psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, or Crohn's disease, just to name a few, due to methotrexate's folate antagonism mechanism of action. Another condition where supplementation is needed is in patients with osteoporosis. As you mentioned before, calcium and vitamin D. So these patients are easy to identify in a medication profile if you see bisphosphonate, like alendronate. Some other medications used for osteoporosis would include prolia or denosumab or forteo, also called teriparatide. So once a pharmacist sees these on a medication profile, As most people probably would already think of, best to recommend calcium and vitamin D. To go into this a bit further, around 1,000 milligrams of calcium and around 800 units, which would be 20 micrograms of vitamin D daily, are recommended to be used with their prescription medication for osteoporosis. I do want to take a moment to mention here once again that it's best to find sources of calcium and vitamin D from the diet where the patient is able to, and then supplement whatever they can't get from their diet up to this amount that I'm describing of 1000 milligrams and 20 micrograms. The clinical efficacy of osteoporosis medications 
was studied in a setting where calcium and vitamin D were used alongside of them. So this is where the evidence really lies. As emphasized previously, diet is really important consideration in this. Furthermore, another area of medications, as Amanda, you alluded to, where we want to be flagged as to what supplementation may be required is a patient on a lot of liquid or immediate release tablets. This demonstrates that a patient may have some type of malabsorption in their GI tract, potentially related to having bariatric surgery and require that additional supplementation. Calcium, particularly calcium citrate, is preferred of 1,200 to 1,500 milligrams of elemental calcium in a day. And then along with this would be iron, 45 to 60 milligrams of elemental iron, a multivitamin, and 100 milligrams of thiamine would all be recommended for a patient who recently had bariatric surgery. So these vitamins may all be indicated upfront as preventative therapy with the respective medications that I listed. Then there's a whole other list of medications that do not require upfront prevention, but may still cause a deficiency somewhere down the line. Amanda, what medications do you think of that could lead to nutritional deficiencies or should lead to a recommendation for nutrient supplementation? You know, that's a really interesting question because some of these medications are medications that wouldn't immediately come to mind as being ones that we should watch for. We recognize, though, that there are a whole group of medications that have been linked to potential vitamin and mineral deficiencies. The first one that comes to mind are the class of medications that are known to be enzyme inducers. The most common drugs in this category would include things like carbamazepine, phenytoin, phenobarbital, but may also include things that are maybe less likely to fully induce, things like oxcarbazepine. Recognizing these, all of these drugs have the potential to enhance the inactivation of active vitamin D, which can lead to an overall deficiency in active vitamin D, which potentially can downstream effect the bone health of the patient, we see that many patients on chronic anti-seizure medications struggle with keeping and maintaining adequate bone health. Adding to that, phenytoin is actually a double whammy because it can lead to both vitamin D deficiency and decreased calcium absorption. So in patients on one of these agents, we need to be cognizant of those particular nutrients. Then shifting gears and thinking about metformin, metformin has been linked to a vitamin B12 deficiency, often we think related to a calcium-dependent cofactor for absorption. And this is seen most commonly when the drug is used for long periods of time and or high doses. And the struggle with that is that we run into a situation where a B12 deficiency can be linked to symptoms like peripheral neuropathy. And patients with diabetes, especially if it's uncontrolled, may be developing peripheral neuropathy for other reasons. So making sure in a patient taking metformin that we're cognizant of the potential risk and are thinking about that as we're assessing our patient. Another group of drugs that has been linked to a B12 deficiency are the proton pump inhibitors. We recognize that B12 in patients who've taken proton pump inhibitors for more than two years, they may be at one and a half to two times increased risk. And that risk goes up if they are elderly or already malnourished. And the PPIs have also been linked to magnesium deficiencies, which can develop as soon as three months into therapy. So more quickly than the B12 deficiency, but often occurs more commonly after a year. What's interesting about the magnesium deficiency and potentially challenging is the idea that up to 25% of patients were not able to fully replete their magnesium until they stopped the PPI. So being cognizant of that fact as well and recognizing that it may require a change in the medication therapy to really fully tackle that particular deficiency. 
None of those that we've talked about yet so far really merit preemptive nutritional supplementation. Instead, I would suggest that with more careful monitoring, we might detect that deficiency and then supplement if it's needed. Obviously, if the patient comes in, they're a well-controlled diabetic and they are describing symptoms of neuropathy, that would prompt an exploration of their B12 levels. Or if they're having tetany or muscle cramps, they could potentially be at risk for magnesium deficiency with long-term PPI therapy. There are guidances that suggest monitoring of some of these nutrients in patients on long-term therapy to preemptively identify a deficiency, but they're not patients that we're necessarily going to say, you should absolutely always be taking B12. There is, however, one example when preemptive nutrient supplementation should be started, and that's the use of isoniazid for treatment of tuberculosis. And where we see this is commonly now in the setting of treatment of latent TB. Even as far back as the mid-1900s, it was known that isoniazid could interfere with that pyridoxin or vitamin B6 activity and effectiveness. Studies support that while B12 may be implicated in other drug-induced neuropathies, it's specifically that pyridoxin or B6 that is impacted with the isoniazid-induced neuropathies. So the Centers for Disease Control currently recommends considering a dose of anywhere from 10 to 50 milligrams of pyridoxin in patients taking isoniazid, although the neuropathy is considered rare at doses of less than five milligrams per kilo. This is the standard dose for an adult patient population. Children, however, need to be monitored probably even more closely and should also be offered that B6. The weight-based dosing for children is sometimes higher than that five milligrams Mm -hmm. per kilo, which only increases their risk for that neuropathy. Mm -hmm. One other point with the pyridoxin supplementation is that in a woman who is breastfeeding, Even if the baby is not taking or the infant is not taking isoniazid, the infant should be offered vitamin B6 supplementation to ensure that they don't experience adverse events from the relatively low amount of isoniazid that may be entering the breast milk. So everything that we've talked about so far, though, makes the assumption that nutritional supplementation is safe. In addition, many patients have the perspective that vitamins are natural and natural is safe. This sounds like a wonderful approach, but we know it may not always be correct. Mm -hmm, Definitely not. (laughs) Becca, when do we as pharmacists need to help our patients understand the risks of supplementing with vitamins? Yeah, I really want to go back to the USPSTF's original recommendation that I touched on at the beginning related to vitamin E and beta carotene. So talking about vitamin E toxicity, that can really increase our patient's risk of bleeding. Two trials found an increased risk of hemorrhagic stroke related to vitamin E toxicity. I just had a patient in Warfarin Clinic the other day who said that he was planning on restarting his vitamin E soon. And I said, please don't just keep it off. That's fine. So this is a fat soluble vitamin too. So I know a lot of our vitamins, we usually will tell someone That's okay. If they take too much, they'll pee out. The rest is something you'll commonly hear. And I think it's important for a pharmacist to remember that vitamin E is fat soluble. So that also increases the risk of toxicity there. So going along with that, if you have a patient who's on warfarin, any DOAX like Eliquis or Xarelto or even dual antiplatelet therapy, it's really important to be on the lookout to see if these patients might also be taking vitamin E and warning them against it and the toxicity associated with it that could increase their risk of a hemorrhagic stroke. Additionally, vitamin B6 at 
doses of greater than 35 milligrams per day could be associated with an increased risk of hip fracture compared with doses of less than two milligrams per day. Now, I know you were just speaking about the benefits of vitamin B6 or pyridoxine in patients who are taking isoniazid. And you mentioned that the dose could be anywhere from 10 to 50 milligrams a day. And I just said greater than 35 milligrams per day. So it is really important to think about the fact that the studies where this was found to be an increased risk of hip fracture were ones in which vitamin B6 was used alongside of vitamin B12. And in addition to that, it was studied on a biennial basis. So this was every two years of follow-up, they found this increased risk of hip fracture to see what it would be like on a six-month or a nine-month course of isoniazid. There's no trial on that. So that makes good sense. Yeah. Additionally, vitamin D at doses greater than 1,000 units per day, which would be 25 micrograms, can increase the risk of kidney stones. When a pharmacist sees a short-term course of tamsulosin prescribed, and vitamin D might also be on that patient's profile, this might be a time to mention to the patient, especially if they're on a higher dose of vitamin D greater than that 1,000 units or 25 micrograms, to speak with their doctor about the possibility of decreasing the dose at the very least, if not potentially even discontinuing the vitamin D for a short period of time while they can identify the cause of the kidney stone. Speaking of causes of kidney stones, another consideration would be to think about whether that patient might be on thiazide diuretics, which may cause kidney stones. And we don't want to use that concomitantly with vitamin D if that's already something that seems to be exacerbating issues for the patient and causing a kidney stone. Another supplement that we like to look at in terms of harm would be biotin. In and of itself, we don't necessarily think of it as harmful, but it does cause a lot of false lab tests that can lead to patient harm. Firstly, I want to touch on the fact that it can cause a falsely low troponin. So if our patients are taking biotin and experiencing a heart attack, this may not be detected, which could be very scary in an emergent situation. Biotin can also cause falsely high thyroid tests which could appear as Graves' disease or could even mask signs of hypothyroidism. When we think about the patients who are taking biotin, it's those who have brittle nails, dry skin, dry hair, which could also be signs of hypothyroidism. But if they're taking the biotin, when they go in for their thyroid tests, this could be masked due to biotin causing falsely high thyroid tests. It can also cause false negative HCG, so consider that in those who are able to get pregnant. And one last thing I want to touch on with biotin is that not only is it available in some drug aisles, but it's also available in the cosmetic aisle. Yeah, Very important for us to think about in terms of the fact that a patient might not be around the pharmacy when they're getting it, but still important for us to keep a lookout for it. Lastly, vitamin C can cause false lab tests as well. A false negative in stool testing 48 to 72 hours after taking vitamin C. Falsely elevated glucose measurements by point of care glucometers. I'm wearing my Freestyle Libre right now and I'm not taking any vitamin C, but it could indicate a falsely elevated glucose and a patient could be hypoglycemic and it go undetected if they're taking too much. It can also cause a false negative of nitrites or leukocytes 
So the patient may be experiencing UTI symptoms and still test negative. And it's really important for providers and pharmacists to take their UTI symptoms that they're explaining at face value and consider treatment for UTI, even if they test negative while taking vitamin C. So to summarize our discussion today, Amanda, how can we help our patients really gain benefit while minimizing the risk of adverse outcomes? You know, one consistent theme through all the information presented today is that healthy vitamin and mineral levels start with a healthy, diverse diet. I think many of us would like for chocolate, macaroni and cheese or other comfort foods to be our dietary foundations, you know, the the (laughs) food groups right there. But we recognize that a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, complex carbohydrates and lead protein sources is really the best choice. There are wonderful resources provided by the professional organizations discussed above and more that offer suggestions on how to step up our intake of necessary nutrients. The other thing I would emphasize is that if our patients are taking one of the at-risk medications or are in an at-risk group, working with our medical providers and pharmacists is an important step in identifying and safely treating any deficiencies while avoiding harm. More is not always better. Mm -hmm. And lastly, one of the best ways we can be a resource for our patients is to stay informed about these current recommendations so we can help to educate on both the benefits and the risks. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today to discuss whether taking your daily vitamins is helpful, harmful, or somewhere in between. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to visit ASHP's community pharmacy practitioners at ashp.org SCPP. In it, you can find member-only content such as the Community Pharmacy Resource Center, ASHP's patient-focused safe medication site, and more. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Community Pharmacy Podcasts. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.